0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nucleate Podcast. We're thrilled to welcome Dr. Tony Kulesa, who's a principal at Pillar VC and co-founder of Petri, with the mission to support founder-led biotechs from conception through the early stages. Tony earned his bachelor's from Rutgers and his PhD in biomedical engineering from MIT. Welcome, Tony.
1: Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with your background. So at MIT, you had multiple roles in startup-affiliated groups, such as the MIT Biotech Group, MIT Biomakers, and Biomed Startup. What was the decision-making process behind joining these organizations?
1: Well, I think it helps to back up and give a little bit of context. So early on in my PhD, or maybe at least by halfway through, I realized that I, in my heart, I, I love being a scientist. I love being at the bench, actually. I used to say I can't be myself without some buffer on the shelf. But I just realized that, okay, if you're an engineer, the bar for success should be making something useful. And you don't find out whether something is useful or not by arguing with three anonymous reviewers about whether it works, whether it's useful. And then publishing a paper and see the way people cite papers is they want to make some claim in their paper and they just look for something they can use to cite it, right? Like, it really doesn't tell you anything. The way that you find out that something useful is whether people use it. And mm-hmm. so as soon as we, you know, our, our lab, we did a lot of technology development. And I realized that we've got to go around to all these other labs and tell them about what we're doing and to get their feedback. And we have to hear what they're doing and try and invent technologies that serve needs that they have. And I became, in some ways, like a pitch guy for our lab. I just went to all these other labs and started presenting. Oh, here's all the technologies in our portfolio. What can we do for you? And I realized, too, that why limit to just academia when the privilege of being at MIT is you're right in the middle of Kendall Square, which is the nexus of the biotech universe. So why not just go out to all these biotech companies and start telling them about the technologies that we have and seeing their interests? And then I started to realize, like, well... The way that we can really determine whether they care about this or not is whether they're willing to sponsor research or part with dollars, not just tell us politely that what we were doing was cool. So I started to think about okay, how could we get them to do sponsor research agreements? And then by, by the time I realized, this is what starting a company is, I guess. So I didn't really start out with it with the intent of going in this direction, but I just realized that this is what I found fulfilling. And as an engineer, what I thought the validation that I needed to feel in order to know that we we're on the right track that we we're building the right things. So, you know, MIT trumpets itself as this entrepreneurial playground. When you show up on the mm-hmm. first day like, the revenue of MIT alumni is the 10th largest economy in the world or something like that. it attracts a lot of entrepreneurial types. But at the time when I was there, the life sciences, it was not really a common thing to think about starting companies or entrepreneurship. Most people, at least outwardly, still had academic aspirations, or there was this kind of idea of academia versus industry, whatever mm-hmm. industry, like it's this monolithic thing. Obviously, it's really academia versus every other possible thing you could do, but somehow it got lumped all together in one big bucket. And there was no real discussion of entrepreneurship. In fact, like, in my PhD program, the only entrepreneurs that I'd ever heard of who came out of a PhD program in the life sciences and started a company where the Ginkgo founders. And back then, this is before they raised any venture capital money. we just knew who they were because they came from the program, but we didn't really understand what they were doing. They were consulting. They scrapped together this lab that they had built off dumpster diving for equipment. And like, no one understood what it was. And it was kind of like, why would you want to go do that? It was not a thing that people did, with the exception of Bob Langer. Everyone knew of Bob Langer. So if you want to, you said, I'm interested in showing company. People be like, that's nice. Go talk to Bob. It was not a common thing. So there's some kind of undercurrent where I wasn't the only one who was, hey, I'm interested in starting companies or commercializing this stuff and felt pulled in that direction naturally. Hmm. And a lot of friends of mine felt this too. And that's kind of where those student organizations came from. So MIT Biotech Group, it wasn't a decision to join MIT Biotech Group as much as it was just like there were a bunch of people with this interest and we all kind of got together and we are like, well, I guess we're a student organization now. In fact, it's it's kind of ridiculous that there's not a student or an organization for biotech at MIT. Like it's literally right across the street from the World Center for Biotech. Why isn't there one? So we started one. And same thing with the MIT BioMakers. There was a bunch of people that had interest in independently doing research or incubating companies that came, you know came from that as well. So you know all of those organizations were things that were founded at the time that I was there, and I got to be a part of this. Founding of mostly as a mechanism for meeting other people and waving a flag so that I could find other people and attract them to come talk to me that had similar interests because I wanted to be friends with them. I wanted to know more people with that interest. So the biggest value to me there was, I think a lot of people, it's amazing if you think about the network that you get in college and in grad school. Mm -hmm. And I often thought about that the most valuable thing I will get out of being in this institution is working with these other people. And I love research, but I had to find ways to go spend time outside of my own lab work with these other people that had the same vision and aspiration for their careers I did. And so all of these things were just ways for I could wave a flag and try and pull people out of the woodwork that I could go meet.
0: That's really fascinating. So it sounds like there was a general evolution over time in your process. You came in thinking academia and then Throughout your experience during your PhD, you came to be involved with entrepreneurship and it sounds like it was a, a, the factor that was driving this was a desire for tangible results. You wanted to see something where you're seeing your inventions, your research being implemented into companies and ultimately to helping people in the future. Is that, is that about right?
1: I wouldn't say it had to be so concrete as implemented in companies or something, but I mean, just seeing people use a thing is so much more tangible than mm-hmm. getting a citation on your paper. The thing that's ridiculous about the academic publishing process is you can't even call the reviewers and talk to them. It's all arbitrated by this editor, and it's all anonymous, and it takes weeks or months sometimes to get news back. I'm like, I just want to sit across the table from somebody. Plop down my technology. Like, Here's yeah. what it does. What do you do? Is this solve a problem, give me raw the feedback. Let me iterate on it. I'll come back to you tomorrow with some iteration on that. It. That's the thing I, I love and, and yearned for. So it was that.
0: So the rapid iteration and direct feedback is something you were craving. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And so you mentioned you started all these groups or were early founder in most of them. How did these organizations and your involvement in them impact your career overall?
1: Yeah, it's probably the most impactful thing that I did. For better or for worse, being at an institution like MIT, I realized that, well, I think it's very hard to predict the value of science early on, but so it's hard to like look at my science versus somebody else's science and say whose was worthwhile. But but certainly I could meet some people and I would just be like, this person the chance that I make a a, a discovery or invention of generational importance versus this person is minuscule. These people are going to be better than, than me at that. And so part of it was this humbling experience of learning, like, Okay, that's not the thing that I'm going. I love it to get me wrong. Like I, if I was left alone and I had, I was Bruce Wayne. Like I would literally instead of fighting crime, I would just have this lab in my basement and just build stuff. That's what I love doing. But mm-hmm. I kind of realized that wasn't where my differential advantage was. My differential advantage was I was really good at my network that I had built. Uh, you know, I knew who to call for any scientific question we had in the lab. I knew who to call. I became really good at explaining the work that we did to people, getting them excited about it and getting their feedback, and then starting collaborations with them and ultimately raising money around the collaborations with them. And all of those things I picked up from my work in these other organizations that weren't directly head down in the lab, even though that's what I love doing most. It was like through all these other things. So being part of it wasn't even just entrepreneurial organizations. One of the other organizations I was a part of was called the ComLab. Then our job was to be kind of like peer-to-peer consultants for people that were working on scientific papers or talks or posters or whatever. And our goal was like, we were just going to be the, the the writing coach for them or the communication coach for them to help them as somebody that was an expert in that field already, as opposed to going to the writing center where you talk to people that don't have any scientific training in like mm-hmm. trying to explain your deeply technical work to an audience of other scientists. So one of the things that I did is through that program, I got to meet literally everyone in the department and hear what they were working on. And hear at first, they even had a departmental seminar where every Friday there'd be two graduate students who had to present their work. And they all went through the comm lab to get with the first draft of their slides. So, so I got kind of the first peek at what everybody was doing. And so that, that just became enormously valuable for all these reasons, right? I, I got to know everybody. I got to know what every lab did. I got to know every person and what they were working on and what they were interested in. I got to know them as people. And so that that network is a lot of what has enabled me to do the work that I do today and have just continued to compound that over time. And I think I mean I'm only a, I'm not that many years out of grad school. I mean mm-hmm. it's like I expect when I 10 years, 20 years from now, like that's going to be the most valuable thing that I got out of grad school. And I, I won't say that's for everybody, but mm-hmm. you know, some some of these people are going to do work that is of generational textbook level importance to science. And that's probably the most important thing that they will do. But for me, it was this other stuff. And so I I definitely credit my work with those other organizations as probably the most valuable thing that I did.
0: That's really interesting perspective that you love the science and you enjoyed that part of the PhD. Obviously, that was a huge part of it. It was also that you have these other skills that you enjoyed and you enjoyed communication and helping other people with communication. You enjoyed connecting with people. And it sounds like also, too, through the story that you enjoy connecting the dots and you like looking at different ideas from different perspectives and learning about other people's fields of research.
1: Yeah, I get a I get a really nice, fuzzy feeling whenever I can plug a gap for somebody. where They're like, this is a problem I have. I really don't know how to solve. But I think it's probably directionally and I need an organic chemist, this kind of training. And, mm-hmm. and I'm just like ah, here's three people I can connect you to and and finding a connection for them that really helps them. I, I love that feeling. So I, I, I make it a habit to do that. And my work now is, is just doing that professionally. So it feels
0: great. That's fantastic. So this leads us great into the next section talking about your career path since academia. So tell me a little bit about your experience transitioning from academia to starting Petri and how that led to where you are today
1: but when i finished grad school we had this idea of building this independent incubator space in an mit basement and so i spent a year kind of working on standing that up and filling a gap that was needed is uh we remember that you know I was building this with with several other instructors at MIT, you know, Steve Wasserman, Maxine Jonas, and uh, some other students. Uh, Oliver Dodd was one of the key people. And and we got the department heads involved and Doug Laufenberger and Paul Hammond. And anyway, so there's this whole kind of group of people who were building this independent lab space that could incubate companies, could help students work on projects. I got really excited about that because I was like, man, this is so cool. We're gonna build an incubator inside of MIT. Mm-hmm. And also I uh, just that was the thing I was, yeah, it was just the most exciting thing I I wanted to do. And I spent a year working on that. But at the same time, while I was working on that, I was kind of like thinking about, okay, well, you know, what am I gonna be doing longer term? And so I was working on a few kind of startup ideas, you know, some related to my PhD work, other ones that just de novo through other people that I had met, we were just kind of working on ideas thinking, oh, this would be cool, let's start this. And so I would spend my day, you know, working on building this this lab space. And and at night, I would just be thinking about and working on talking to people about what startups we could build and stuff. But I just kept coming back to this idea that I had a lot of friends through that I met through these organizations that you mentioned that wanted to start companies and really didn't know how to get started. And to be honest, the investment community was not very helpful. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how to get started. They're mostly getting turned away, you know, and I thought these are some of the most talented people of their generation, like... How could you possibly turn them away just out of the pure like, oh, you know, who are you? Like you're not a farming executive or something like that, right? Sure. Um and so I I had a lot of friends that either parted with their kind of entrepreneurial ambitions or mm-hmm. kind of moved to California and raised money from tech investors or something. And so I thought, like, how could we build a structure that would help these people get started? And I met a colleague of mine now, Jamie Goldstein, who was the founding partner at Pillar, you know, where where I work now. And, you know, Pillar had not started as a fund that was going to be doing a lot in biotech, but was focused on university spinouts, usually deeply, deeply technological. And everyone on the team had the experience of starting companies, where had operating experience, and would... Aimed to be the first call for people that were working on some research-based, hmm. you know, uh, it, not necessarily in biotech, but anything, you know, often coming and were parked like right outside MIT and Harvard. And so accident, uh, almost accidentally, they they were like kind of found their way to doing some really interesting companies, one called Asimov, which came out of Chris Floyd's lab at MIT, is led by the graduate student who pioneered their work inside the lab named Alec Nielsen. Another one is called PathAI which uh, came from Andy Beck, who left his faculty job at HMS to go start that company wow. and became the first investor in both of those companies. Um, Grow Bioscience is another one that came out of George Church's lab. And so they started to feel like, wow, like, first of all, why are we even seeing this? And second of all, like, how do we do more of this? Like, how many more of those kinds of opportunities are there out there? And so, I, you know, I, I got introduced to Jamie via my friend Alec Nielsen, who's from my PhD program, um, you know, from the mm-hmm. aforementioned Asimov. And I was happy to tell Jimmy, I was like, oh, the reason that we're seeing this is because like the Boston biotech communities car- will not really fund these kinds of companies. Like they're not therapeutics where that's been the kind of area where people have, you know, just want to repeat the pattern of what's working for them. And and also they're led by people that are not experienced company builders. And they are the academics or the scientists who want to take the reins of, of their own work and, and take it to the next phase. And that usually wasn't the pattern that most of these other investors were used to. And so I think that was part of it. And the second one is, I think they were they were doing things that a lot of things we didn't understand. Like Asimov was not a, you know, not, not neither of these companies were, they, they had different business models, they had different kinds of technology, they were much more rooted in engineering than the basic biology. And so I think that there was an opportunity there as well. And so what we decided to do was like, well, how deep does the opportunity go? Like, is it just kind of Is there just a few of these companies every year that are going to look like this? Or are we really at the beginning of a new kind of change in how biotech companies are formed, the kind of technologies they're built on, and so on? And so we started – what we decided to do was let's take 5% of Pillar's second fund, which was a $100 million fund. And so we took about $5 million, and we decided let's make this incubator Petri. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were three of us. It was Jamie Goldstein um, from Pillar – Myself who, you know, I, I brought the network of a lot of these scientists who are aspiring to go start companies and Brian Baines, who was formerly a partner at Flagship. He had spent fifteen or twenty years, you know, building companies with them, and CEO of four or five companies, founded, you know, and invested in many with the partnership there. And and uh he brought you know the really deep biotech expertise. And we co-founded it with people that had or we're meeting where I built some of the iconic companies that we could think of, you know, in all the areas of bioengineering, like broadly scoped, you know, not just the therapeutics, uh, diagnostics, food, um, mm-hmm. synthetic biology, you know, everything. And our concept was like, if you're doing this for the first time, why not do it alongside people that have built it and done it before and kind of can share their experience, their network, et cetera. And so from that experience, we built this incubator, you know, that we called Petri. We helped about thirteen teams get started. I think mm-hmm. almost all of them. We were the first investor. Most of the time, there's not even an incorporated company. It was just, you know, one or two founders who were like, Yeah, I want to do this. And we were the partner who were able to help them get off the ground. And that experiment went phenomenally well. We found that there were not just, you know, tens or hundreds, there were thousands of people who want to do this. And I think a lot of that is exactly the same kind of thing that nucleate has been helping accelerate Mm -hmm. is this trend. And, and, you know, we can talk about, I'm I'm curious at your point of view on what's the cause of this transition. But, you know, for this year, this year was the first year where I think this came out in stat news a couple of weeks ago that more than half of PhDs want to leave academia and go into industry. And Mm -hmm. that is a really new thing, you know, that there's just this huge wave of interest. And so we found that, no, there were, there, there are thousands of these people out there that want to do this. And so we decided last year when we raised our third fund at Pillar, uh, to merge Petri into Pillar and take advantage. Like we just needed something bigger that we could start to really leverage this opportunity that we were finding. And we made it a third of our fund. Um, so now, you know, that's under the name Pillar Bio, but it's everything that we built underneath the Petri name. And we continue to just grow this. The, our, our, our mission is really just how do we just increase the rate of company formation in biotech or how do we increase the number of successful biotech startups in the world and pour everything that we have, all the energy and resources that we have, into just accelerating the growth of this movement.
0: That's a really fascinating story behind it. It's, it sounds like there was a gap that you were seeing at the ground level of founders who are interested in non-therapeutics, it sounds like, and connecting them to founders would, or to funders who would help support them along their journey from the ground up, as opposed to what you're saying before, which is they would have to either raise from tech investors who don't have the expertise or they often gave up. So it sounds like you're filling a, an important niche, which was not previously being filled with Petri and now Pillar Buyout.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And I just, I would say one thing, which is, you know, I would say it's just not just therapeutics. I mean, probably Mm -hmm. a third to half of what we do is therapeutics, but we just think there's a lot of the important problems of the world are not just in human health and they're not just even therapeutics as much as consumer biotech, you know? So I think that there's a lot that we could, we're investors in companies that are making cheese and coffee and Mm -hmm. cotton. And like, so we, we do both the therapeutics and explore some of these other kinds of areas.
0: That's great. And it's, so it sounds like it's a much, it's a broad perspective of using synthetic biology and other tools that are coming out of MIT and other labs at the early stage and helping the academics or prior academics stay on in industry.
1: That's right. And and we invest nationally. So not, you know, just my Mm -hmm. network came came from the Boston area, but you know, probably about half of our investments now are are outside of New York, San Francisco, UK, even Berlin. So
0: that makes a lot of sense. It's the, the bias towards action, wanting to see the tangible impact, seeing ideally getting into patients and making a difference in their lives. So being able to, to really see the difference in the shorter term or within the span of a few years rather than a few decades certainly sounds like it's captivating to people. And it seems like there's an acceleration of that. It seems like people are developing scientific inventions, seeing them get developed into into therapies or tools or other items that can make a difference in patients' lives, which sounds really captivating for a scientist as opposed to contributing to the general knowledge of science, which is still obviously a meaningful endeavor, but it sounds like there's this other way that's becoming more important and it's becoming on a broader scale that that people are excited about.
1: Yeah. And I think the culture of biotech is changing too. You know, I think there is some middle ground. There are these new institutions which are in in the middle of academia and kind of biotech startups. There's the new focus research organization model um, that's being pioneered by Schmidt Futures and Convergent Research, but is, you know, growing beyond that as well, which is starting like little Nonprofit, I shouldn't say little. They're actually very well funded, like to doing the $50 million, you know, as many as, as much as like a very big series A in biotech, like they're funded that level as a nonprofit biotech startup kind of to build fundamental infrastructure and do basic science that's helpful to the community. And there's all these new institutes that are being explored, like, you know, the Arc Institute or Arcadia or something. And so I think that the thing that I'm really excited about is this exploration of new models and who knows, like, I don't know, like maybe all maybe we'll do all the exploration or we'll realize, I don't know, like we had it right, you know, but I think that's very unlikely. I think it's very unlikely we were at the optimum. Um We were at mm-hmm. some kind of we were trapped at some kind of local optimum. A lot of these things have like game theoretic reasons for like prisoners dilemma type reasons or tragedy of the commons type reasons for being why they were. And sure. I think I'm very excited. It seems like we may be breaking out of that and exploring new models for, for both the academic and the for profit side of biotech.
0: I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. I'm not that familiar with these new focused institutions. Is it a new model of developing research to drive more towards patents and more towards therapies or other technologies that help patients? Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Well, I should say these are just friends of mine and we're not involved in any formal way, but is that there are these projects that fall in between where they really need the focused, hence the word focus, they need a focused effort to build the, a, a focused team to build the kinds of infrastructure uh, or tool or something that would be of a, a broad service to many in the academic and biotech communities. But you can't do an academic lab because you, academics are all individually incentivized. You can't do it in a for-profit setting because there is no, it's kind of pre-commercial. And so there are these projects that fall in the gap between. And so I think some of the Projects that have been announced publicly. One is about domesticating new microbial organisms. Another one is on mapping the connectome. And I think there's many more on, on their website that have uh, been announced. You can check it out. Convergent research is the name and we're big fans.
0: So let's, let's pivot a little bit to Pillar. So it'd be great to understand how Petri became a part of Pillar. You touched on it a little bit, which is that they were involved with Petri at a relatively early stage. But how did, how did you eventually become a part of Pillar VC?
1: Well, I mean, it was all – I mean, we were all all the same team, all the same family. Just, uh, you know, what we are doing – our model was a little bit different with Petrie in that we were investing basically enough money to cover people's salaries for six months to a year while we could try and create a company around them. And with Pillar, we are able to do that at a larger scale. So, I mean, last year – Instead of having it just be a small slice of the fund and an independent entity, we decided let's make it a third of the fund and the same entity. And nothing else has really changed other than we have the ability to to do this at 10x larger scale and hopefully soon 100x larger scale than we were able to do uh, earlier.
0: That's fantastic. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about how Pillar approaches venture investing differently than other funds? I know you talked about this a little bit, but it would be good to dig into this. What is it that separates pillar from other funds and how they invest in biotech specifically? We can also talk in general, but biotech specifically would love to dig into that.
1: So I would say, look, the world doesn't need more VCs. So we think we take that very seriously. Like what is our, what is our reason for being here? And I think that the reason why I say like the world doesn't need more VCs is because like typically with VC, you're kind of investing in things that already exist. And you know, everyone usually at a certain point in company lifetime maturities, it becomes clear what the winners are, and most of VCs are trying to make their career based on competing to get access into the best companies, and this is the wait and pay model of, of VC. But that's honestly what a lot of it is, and so we we really take the, the this very differently. So I look at okay, how did this whole revolution around the startup kind of culture and ecosystem happen in tech and who played the core roles in that? I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. I've got to point to YC as having had a tremendous impact on how the whole startup world works, like hmm. making it really easy for people to get started, introducing everything from not just the accelerator, you know, YC, but also the safe Hacker News. I mean, people forget like introducing Hacker News, which literally the entire tech world is reading as their primary news source for at the head, and and I think it's. Not as popular anymore. Uh, Twitter's probably taken over at this point, but I think so. I've done so much and I feel like that's what we're in the early phases of in biotech. And I don't think it's the same. You can't just copy paste YC into that, but yeah, they had an impact, which is far greater than just the investments that they've made. And there are other, I don't, not to, not to, not to say that there aren't other people that have had similar impacts. And, and I think like there, there are many in that category, right? But th- the way that I think we think about our business is, Not just how do we help invest in, you know, and and help bring to fruition some small number of companies that we're able to touch over our, over our lifetimes as investors, but how do we enable the growth of this whole ecosystem? Hmm. Um, despite there being tens of billions of dollars of R&D investment federally, there's, I think about a hundred thousand, maybe 80,000 US faculty. There's uh, over a hundred thousand active NIH projects. We only create about 300 companies a year in biotech, despite all of that. Like, why is that number a thousand or two thousand or five thousand? Like, you know, I don't know. It could be much larger than it is. I don't know what the ceiling is. And so, the way that I think about what we can do is, let's make that number much larger. And suddenly, we're not competing over some finite pool, some finite three hundred companies here or something to say who can get into the existing you know companies and who's hot and who's not or whatever. But let's just grow the ecosystem. And we think that if we're growing the ecosystem, we will do great as investors because we'll have the opportunity to invest in a few of those companies and we'll do well for ourselves and we'll do well for our investors and we can recycle that capital into further growing the ecosystem. So that's what gets us really excited. And a lot of what we do is you know, creating all kinds of detailed guides and FAQs, a whole library of resources for all the questions you might have starting biotech companies. We run summits, which are an equal mix of just inspiration. I think that's a huge part of this, as well as educational. Like how, what are the nuts and bolts of how to get started? We run courses that we have. Um, we have hundreds of teams a year participate in our free online courses that bring make available to anyone in the world. Um, and we have a bunch of new things which we'll be announcing over the next year uh, that we're trying, and and of course, like we're huge supporters of nucleate, which I think yeah. share share our vision for for what's possible here. And I think that that is, I, I won't say that that is there are no one else that shares that viewpoint. I think there there are lots of friendly investors that we think, but but I feel like we're incredibly privileged that the investment model really aligns incentives with that. That's that's our that's w- what drives us. as we get up in the morning every day to go do. That's what all of our uh, way of viewing our success is is that's how we view our own success, and I think that's a pretty unique approach in in the venture capital world
0: I love your passion for this subject it's clearly like getting you off your chair and that, that's that's fantastic I, I love that energy so to summarize, pillar is rethinking the venture model and you're saying that there's this huge number of faculty grants etc and you're saying that the bottleneck that you're seeing is really on the Early stage company formation side, and that pillars coming in to help build an ecosystem to help support those early stage founders have the courage to make that leap into entrepreneurship and grow that number of 300 biotech companies from year per year to be higher. Does that yeah?
1: That's right, but not just courage. Courage, resources, community—you yeah. know—that's I, I, all the factors that are necessary to to succeed here.
0: All and and I think
1: an important thing is we're not just trying to increase the rate of company formation, but the rate of successful company formation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Really so the tools, the skills, the connections, et cetera, to help build the community as a whole, as well as to help companies succeed at that early stage and make people, it sounds like de risk the process as well. Yeah, that's right. That's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit more about your investments thesis, what areas do you think are the most exciting today?
1: It's a good question. So I think the thing that I, you know, I, I, I'm a technologist, and so I, I view, I really view biology as a substrate of technology technology. And I'll give you the general thesis and then and I'll say something a little bit more concrete about it. But sure. if you look back to how the biotech industry formed, like what what created all of this, it came from the ability to read and write DNA. You know, everyone knows that, you know, 1970s Genentech, the, those kind of early companies came from recombinant DNA, which is essentially just the ability to interface with DNA. Mm-hmm. The thing that's special about biological systems is that they're, they're, they, they range a huge number of orders of magnitude. So you have DNA, RNA, protein, cells, tissues, organisms, and then even whole ecosystems. And so you range the atomic level of DNA all the way up to the whole ecosystem, ranging like the biomes of our Earth, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So with the thing that started the biotech revolution in the 1970s was the ability to interface with the DNA part of the system. And of course, That is incredibly far-reaching consequences, but now we've developed the ability to to interface in almost equivalent manner. What does that mean by interface? I mean to read and to write Mm -hmm. um, to the RNA, the protein, the cell, the, you know, all those different layers. So what do I mean? Let's start with the reads, okay? So, uh, we can read, like we're, proteomics is, is, excel, is massively accelerated over the time that I've, I've worked in, in this business, you know, starting with mass spec proteomics, but now we see a whole suite of new companies launching and we're investors in, in a one next generation proteomics company. So we have the read, you know, we can read protein in terms of reading cells and tissues, like the whole spatial revolution that's going on and being able to read things in time, single cell RNA seed. Uh, and then in terms of being able to read, ecosystems. Like you have just massive kind of metagenomic sampling That's and, you know, even companies like BioBad Analytics that are literally sampling our sewers and looking at the DNA that's floating around in our sewers. So, and then on the right side, you know, we're also developing equivalent technologies like mRNA therapeutics or all the kind of small RNAs that are new therapeutic modalities that people are discovering with regard to being able to program protein interactions, like this is the whole Protex molecular glue type uh, new technologies that people are developing. You can induce or or block protein protein interactions. You can take now cells, like we can engineer as cell therapies. So we can actually program them, you know, we have yep. the success of CAR T and now there's this whole suite of new kinds of cell technologies and new applications of those technologies that are going in. And um I think we're gonna see an enormous uh, uh you know number of new new things in that space over the next decade. Um And then, you know, even things like whole ecosystems, like we had the gene drive technologies that were, that came out, uh, maybe five years ago and still kind of, uh, something of huge kind of ethical, uh, discussion of like what, what, how to develop these technologies so they can be used safely and whether we should even be using them at all. But I think it's, it's worth just knowing that like that the technologies, what the technologies are capable of. And so we have these abilities to read and write all these different layers of the system. And I think that if Genentech and the whole biotech industry really came from their able to read and write DNA, like just imagine what can happen when you unlock all these other new things. And then I'll just tell you, like, the thing that I'm always really excited about is if you look at all of our new technology, like the ways we have to manipulate biological systems, just mm-hmm. think through in your head, like all of these different things I just named. Okay. We've got everyone. Okay. CRISPR, big headline, CRISPR. Okay antibodies, how many hundreds of billions of dollars of values, antibodies created, how many new drugs are antibody drugs, viral vectors, of course, you know, the vectors of gene therapy, you know, even restriction enzymes, which I brought back into their common the DNA revolution 1970s. What do all these technologies have in common? They all are post-pathogen interactions, right? Like Antibodies are come from our immune system. CRISPR is bacterial immune system. Viral bacteria, viruses are just you know our pathogens to humans. Restriction enzymes are bacterial immune system. All of these things evolve in an arms race over over you know bi- billions of years. Evolution, co-evolution between hosts and pathogens to control and manipulate each other. And so the thing that I think is we're sitting on this goldmine of new technologies. If we just look at more deeply the host pathogen interactions, both within our, you know, humans as well and the model organisms we have, as well as all kinds of other species. I think that is something where we're going to discover many, many new kinds of technologies of equivalent kind of impact as RNAi or CRISPR or antibodies or whatever.
0: That's a really fascinating, just global perspective of all biotechnology and all of the exciting developments from, like you said, the right side. And I never thought about it that way as, you know, the host pathogen interactions driving a lot of the new technologies that are coming out. So that's a really fascinating perspective on it. I know we're running a little short on time, so I'll transition to career stuff for advice. What advice would you give yourself or someone who's in their Ph.D. and thinking about entrepreneurship and industry type roles? What would you say to someone in that position who's still figuring out their next steps?
1: I think I would say two things. One is have patience. I think there are very few things that you can do well in your life. So if you think about every important project that you work on will take five to ten years, just no question. Like you can't – anything that takes shorter than that is likely a scam. You know, that's what we've basically seen. So any important, really important project is going to take five to ten years. Mm -hmm. You just don't have that many bullets. Like if you're finishing your PhD or even if you're an undergrad or something and you're 25 years old and maybe you're going to work until productively until you're 80, hopefully. I, like I don't know how much longer you can go past that. You've got like 5, 10 bullets. Like there's really just not that many. Mm-hmm. So I think being an investor has taught me like you can't make every bet. Like, Like there's probably a price at which you can make every bet, but just the thing that is – you're, the most important thing is time. Like not everything is worth a bullet. And if you can manage it, like don't do things which you don't think are worth a bullet. Just make sure that you are investing in your network and in generating a flow of opportunities and reading a time and meeting, you know, m- making sure you're spending time talking to as many people as you can, trying to, trying to bring opportunities towards you until you find one that is you know, worthy of that bullet. And the other thing is, if you don't have any kind of criteria that tells you what's worth a bullet or not, probably figure that out. Like, and I don't know what your best way of figuring that out is. Like, whether it's just introspection, probably journaling and introspection, reading a lot of, uh, talking to people that you admire that you want to be like, and then also I think cultivating mentors is it like something that I've benefited greatly from. They who have the wisdom of their own life, kind of experience and. Uh, you don't always have to listen to them, but being able to engage seriously with them over what's a bullet or what's, you know, what's worth a bullet or not, I think is a really important thing. So maybe this is a counterpoint to this idea of like, let's create, you know, let's accelerate the number of companies that we're creating because here I'm actually saying slow down. Like if you don't, if you're not 100% sure that you want to spend five to 10 years of your life on this next thing, just don't, don't do it if you can afford not to.
0: That that's great advice. It sounds like exploring opportunities thoughtfully, having your own internal rubric for how you evaluate those opportunities, talking to lots of people you're inspired by, and having cultivating mentors along the way. Those are all great pieces of advice. And I, my last question for you, as we, we close out, is is one taken from Guy Raz, who does the podcast How I Built This. And the question is, how much of your success can be attributed to luck? And how much skill or hard work?
1: So I actually I I have multiple points of view on that question.
0: Yeah, please. Uh,
1: I think the fact that I was born into a place where I even had the opportunity to get to where I am is incredible. You know, lottery ticket winner, right? You know, lots of people don't have the opportunity, and one of the things that we can do to you know accelerate the global growth of biotech is just to try and get more of those people that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that starts you know as early as having you know good nutrition or good parents or. Uh, a loving family, a great education, and all of these things that so many people in the world don't have access to mm-hmm. so i think I count myself incredibly lucky that uh that i you know was i had all of those things and i I feel uh really grateful for you know for all of that and then i think i think it's i think it's about engineering your own luck in some ways, you know like i think look i don't think this is true in every field, but like in biotech you it's just inescapable that we're taking enormous amounts of technical risk and you just don't know, like there's no amount of genius that can, uh, that can uh, not be uh, overcome by you know nature or that could just be folly, you know? So uh, even the best scientists, uh, even the, the people that have won multiple Nobel prizes have done tons of things wrong. And so like got tons of things wrong. And so you're, you're just inescapable amounts of technical risk. So I think, you know, no matter what you do, if you're successful, you're definitely lucky in some way. And the only escape to that is to try to engineer out of that, so how do you engineer out of that? The only way you can escape stochasticity is with large numbers. Mm-hmm. So how do you get to large numbers? You just have to do a lot of things over a long period of time, and so I try not you know i think it's it's a ridiculous question to me to say you're a success because i'm i i there's nothing I've done that I could say is successful yet. I mean, I think there are things that we're proud of, but I really view everything as you know, some days were up and some days were down and, uh, hopefully you have enough of a large enough portfolio of things going on in your life and enough projects you are working on stuff that some are up and some are down at the same time. They all kind of balance each other out. And so every day, you know, some things are up and some things are down, but you're thinking on the timescale decades. And so, you know, you're not really thinking about, Oh, I'm up today. Let's celebrate. Or I'm down today. Like boo hoo. You're just thinking about like, am I roughly on track where I'm getting a little better every day, every month, every year, towards reaching that final goal that I'm trying to achieve. And then, you know, all you're trying to think about is uh, if you're trying to escape stochasticity, you're trying to take a lot of opportunities and bets that you can to get there. And so, you know, I think that's what I've tried to do in a number of ways. Like uh, in invest, in investing is is kind of a natural fit for that because venture capital, um, you're working on projects of which the timescale is 10, 15, 20 years inherently, you can't do it any other way. You're creating a portfolio of things that you're working on inherently. That's part of the job of, you know, investing. And, uh, and so I think, you know, that, that fits my temperament very well, but I think no matter what you're doing, you have to be prepared to, to just get, get better, try and practice it and get better at it every, every day. And and even if it feels like you're winning, not, not get too excited and not too, um, celebratory because likely you're just lucky that day and the next day you'll be down or or the next year you'll be down. But just keep your eye on the ball of this very long-term kind of trajectory that you're on.
0: Well, I'll leave that there. Really great perspective. It's been wonderful talking with you, Tony, and thank you for taking the time to speak and supporting Nucleate.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I I, uh, I love these discussions and I really love the work that you guys are doing. I think this is such an important aspect of how we spread knowledge and uh, access to people. And, of course, I'm I'm happy to chat more with anybody listening. Um, You can find me on Twitter. Um, I spend more time on Twitter than I should, so you can find me there and talk to me there if, if you'd like to talk further.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Tony.